Welcome to Rogue Bogues, episode 10, basketball podcast. What is going on, pro? What's news? Bogues, man, I've been watching this fucking Denver Nuggets last possession from last night about 748 times, and it it gets better every time I watch it. What the fuck is going on in basketball today that, I mean... Last second shot. Look, there's always Monday morning quarterbacks and, and internet fucking experts, but you know. Oh, that's ridiculous. Like, that's ridiculous. No, it's not, yeah, that's not Monday morning I mean, quarterbacks. It's like, you know, for those that don't know, the Nuggets got a steal with about six seconds left. They were down two, right? Yeah, down two. And turned, they got the steal and were basically, it was a four on one fast break. I believe Jamal Murray had the ball dribbled to a wing and all three guys on the Nuggets roster ran to a, th- a three point, a, sh- a spot on the three point line. <laughs> and Jamal Murray was like, what the hell? Did you see what Jamal Murray posted? Did you see the picture? Yeah, like my angle or something like that. Uh, something uh, something to that ang- uh, effect, like yeah. this angle or my angle. Yeah, yeah. For those that haven't seen it, go to Jamal Murray's Twitter page. He posted a still shot of when he had the ball and picked up his dribble on the wing and what he saw. And it was one defender on him and three Nuggets players on the uh, on the perimeter just with 2.4 left. So, one one of those guys cuts. He could literally could have thrown a, lolly, a lollipop type, you know, looping pass. They would have laid it in for the win. But I guess it just goes back to we're going to shoot threes at all costs, bro. Yeah. Like, you know, and, we'll, and we're going to talk about a couple of these situations, not this one, but a couple of others that where like, you know, Today's game is robotic. It's three pointers and at all costs. It's like no one's reading time and score in actual situation. What should I actually do versus what's loved in the NBA statistically, analytically? And it makes players just like lack in that basic fundamental of playing basketball. I mean, anybody at any park and anywhere in the world, I can go to the, I can go to fucking Siberia. And, and people who've never played basketball before. And they would know that, shit, I got fucking three seconds. I could cut to the basket. No one's there. I could just lay it in. But, you know, hey, their spacing was fucking great. So, like, all these fucking, <laughs> you know, all these fucking commentators that only say space and pace the whole fucking time, they're loving life because they their spacing was phenomenal. Unfortunately, the you know, the spacing that they really cared about is they fucking lost by two. So yeah, that's it was, my, it was that's hard my to watch. Spiel. I saw the still shot, and uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, a hard position to watch. And we are a three at all three at all costs society right now when it comes to basketball. It's not so, not as bad in the NBL in Australia, and it's, I don't think it's as bad in Europe. I think the NBA with the amount of spacing and you understand the analytics of it, it, it makes sense for the most part. But I think that there needs to be you know your unique situations, your time and score situations where you um where you need to be smart with it. But we have some some pretty big news, a pretty in depth discussion we're going to have right now it, it goes with the the minnesota timberwolves made a coaching change um this has caused a big uproar in the nba for numerous reasons we'll get into it right now basically the minnesota timberwolves fired ryan saunders caused some controversy they, they hired chris finch from the toronto raptors who was an assistant coach currently on the toronto raptors staff so the uniqueness of what's happened as well is that generally assistant coaches don't get poached mid-season to take over a team. The way it works, most teams will wait to the off-season to sign an assistant coach that's on another team. This is one of those unique situations. I was actually part of one, which was with um, the Milwaukee Bucks back in the day and had um, Lionel Hollins took the Memphis job mid-season and, and, and left us as an assistant. So, I was part of one of those, but it's very, very rare. Now, 
This has caused some controversy. We've got uh, a reporter named Mark Spears who, to give some context, Mark writes a lot of uh, articles whenever a GM or coach is hired or fired. Mark will follow up with an article relating to skin color. And that's just something that is kind of his niche with articles is, you know, if a, if a GM spot is open, he'll comment on whether it, the hiring should have been a black GM or a white GM or and, and vice versa with firings. And, and this has been no different. He's basically penned, a, penned an article about kind of uh, players and coaches around the league not being happy with the hiring, uh, which is um, Chris Finch saying that David Vanderpool, who is with the Minnesota Timberwolves or was with the Minnesota Timberwolves as the head assistant, a pretty well-traveled coach, pretty good coach from what I hear. A lot of advocates and Dame, Dame Lillard, CJ McCollum was with the Blazers. He was the head assistant under under Saunders that he should have got that job. And it's somewhat turned into a bit of a, you know, is this is – this, uh, a player's been a player's coaches GM's still being looked at as as different for having having a different skin color and to me it's it's kind of been interesting to read the coaches association have put out a statement which we'll get to a little bit later but here's a quote from Spears there are currently seven bl- seven black NBA head coaches among 30 teams in the league where about 75% of the players are African American the news of Vanderpool not becoming the eighth rocked the black coaching fraternity how do you see all that bro Folks, you got to be really careful when you start throwing around implication, you know, when you're trying to implicate somebody for being, you know, not racist, but sort of heading down that path. And it's lazy journalism if you're going to do that, but to just do it. And in my opinion, you have to break down that situation for what it is. And, I, and I've got a few points I want to make on it because I was watching games that, you know, the night that Ryan got fired and it sort of rise, raised my eyebrow a little bit that Chris Finch got it and not David Vanderpool because I know David's the, you know, the, the lead assistant there. So, yeah, it, it sort of caught my eye, but I didn't think much of it. And then I started seeing the players sort of tweet about it and that's fine. You know, CJ McCollum and Damian Lillard, those, they work with Vanderpool. He's very well liked in the basketball fraternity through coaches and players without question. And then this isn't a question if he's qualified or not because he is qualified to be a head coach and if he was given an opportunity. But then I started reading um, some accounts, you know, talking about race and, you know, uh, another, you know, shaking my head, another another time that, you know, a black person gets over, you know, overlooked by a white person in, in, the, in the, you know, coaching fraternity. And that's when I broke down the situation and, and I don't see it as a race situation at all. You know, I see it as, look, they're in year two of their rebuild. Gerson got the job two years ago, hired Ryan Saunders. That was his coach to go forward with the organization. They struggled. It didn't work. They had a, he has to, you know, obviously make a coaching change. Now, when you're making the coaching change, you're year two, you know, going into year three now almost. And the next coach you make, the coaching decision that you make has to be the right one or your job's going to be on the line. You can't get two coaches wrong, right? So, you have to make a gut decision. And the best decision you can make is by hiring somebody that's in your building. But if that person isn't right, you've had two years to evaluate him. He was also with him in Houston. So, you have two years to evaluate Vanderpool if that's what the coach that you want. And if it's not the coach that you want, why are you going to have him coach 30 plus games to try to right the ship? And then if you make another coaching change, 
Now that new coach has to step in and try to build through training camp and maybe go through a learning curve and go 20, 30 games of struggling and then try to turn the corner, which might never get turned. So there obviously was something missing. And I don't know what that something is. And that's between you know, those the people in that building. But to say it's race it, it is, you know, I, I think it's a little out of left field. Even though, you know, the situation, you, you know, raise an eyebrow, why are you going to take somebody from the outside? Now, the other step in this situation is you want to get your number one guy. You're in the middle of a season. So now you, instead of competing with four or five other clubs that were going to have coaching changes in the summer and trying to get a Chris Finch, if that's the guy that you want, why not get him now with no competition? You get the guy that you want to coach the rest of the season, let him go through his learning curve of being a first-time head coach in the NBA, and then you go forward. But that's Gerson Rosas' decision to make as a GM. He, that his job is going to eventually be on the line if this ship doesn't get going on the right course. And again, it's not the situation, is David Vanderpool qualified to be a head coach? Because he is, and he will be. It's just not going to be in Minnesota. So my next step is, you know, which I think is very lacking in the NBA, what I would do if I was David Vanderpool is go into the office and say, Gerson, look, I'm going to take the emotion out of it. Obviously, I'm pissed I didn't get the job. I know I'm not going to get it. But what did you see in me that I didn't do? Because you're one of 30 GMs and I have to make sure that I tighten everything up to, if I want to become a head coach in this league. And what is it? And I need an honest answer. I can't have a, you know, an answer that's just like going to get me out of this meeting and just so I leave and there's no confrontation. What is it that you see? See, I think there's a huge problem in the NBA boat. It's a huge problem in coaching staffs and in the front office about the lack of feedback that not high level uh, uh, employees get, but like low and mid empl you know, level employees, as far as getting real feedback throughout the year, how you get, you know, how you're doing on your job. Like, you know, your assistant coach, you sign like a three-year deal, a four-year deal, and, you know, and you coach your team. You either run the offense, you run the defense, whatever you do. And, you know, you're getting high fives by everybody in the building. Oh, you're doing great. We love you. We're going to, you know, it's going to be a long lasting relationship. And then like year four, you're, you know, you're waiting to get your contract done. And then you come to the table and like, ah, oh, yeah, we're going to make a change. You know, we're going to make a change with, you know, with your position. Sorry. Sorry, it didn't work out. And you're sitting there and you're like, what the fuck? Like, wait a minute, everything has been great. No one tells me anything. And now I'm, now I'm gone and I have a family and now I got to go to fucking Sioux Falls, South Dakota and coach and try to get back in the NBA instead of somebody saying, well, wait a minute, you know, like your pick and roll coverages weren't good. You need to retool them or you, you don't present well to the team. You need to work on that. And like, I really feel as though, cause I've got friends in about 20 organizations, coaches, general, um, in, in front offices. And I ask most of the time, I said, does anyone talk to you about like what you need to get better at? And most people say no. Most people say no, but most people say no, we never have that talk. And I had head coaches ask me from all levels, how do I mentor my coaches? How do I mentor people? Then I said, fucking talk to them. Evaluate them. There shouldn't be six weeks, Bogues. No one's this busy. There shouldn't go six weeks where you don't talk to every one of your employees that are under you, coaching, coaches on your coaching staff, scouts in your front office, that you don't sit them down and say, look, this is what you do really well. This is what you really need to work on. You know, and now you have four or five discussions throughout the year, you know, and that, and that's what 
that's what I think makes, you know, makes a development of, of a staff member or a staff in the organization. And I think all 30 owners need to get on board with this to make sure their people are actually given feedback. So now you can employ from within. Now, look, if, if like a head, a headlining head coach gets fired and you're going to, um, and you're going to replace your offensive coordinator with that guy, I can see that. But if you have a problem like, yeah, your, your offense is a little old, your defense, eh. You know, you don't get along with the players. You got to let them know. It's like player development. I've been in a million coaches meetings and I fucking can't stand them because I go, you know, j- like, and they're all bitching of all players and they're like, well, Johnny doesn't roll. Fuck that guy. And I'll be like, raise my hand. I'm like, well, did anyone tell Johnny he's not fucking rolling? And they go, no, they fucking should know. I said, there's your problem right there. You're setting the guy up to fail because all you have to do is have a conversation. Hey, Fucking roll, and we go, and we're good to go. I remember having a conversation. It was a joking one. Um, we had a kid named Kyle Collinsworth for for the Dallas Mavericks, and you know he was a struggling shooter that needed to shoot more in games. And I remember having you know I was having dinner with with the coaching staff, and it was like, yeah, he doesn't shoot. I'm like, I guarantee, how many threes you want him to take before halftime? And they're like three. I'm like, I bet you ten bucks that I can get him to shoot three before halftime. He said, okay. I went right to the fucking guy's hotel room. I said, look, you got to fucking shoot the ball. And that's what they're asking you to do. And you need to do it. That's what communication is, folks. I'm not fucking perfect. But what I'm saying is like, you got to communicate with people. And I I don't know, that might have happened in Minnesota. That may not have happened. But I'm just saying in the league collectively, that's not done enough. So to tie this all up, I just don't like the self-righteousness of some, you know, social media accounts and, and, and how that goes because, you know, I'd rather listen to fucking, you know, Osama bin Laden, you know, write for Hallmark and give me a fucking, write me a fucking lullaby at night than fucking listen to somebody, you know, somebody's fucking accounts and, and what they say about self-righteousness because they got more skeletons in their closet than the fucking Adams family. And some, <laughs> you know, and, and they talk about, and they talk about self-righteousness and it's not right. It's not right for Chris Finch. It's not right for Gerson Rosas in the Minnesota Timberwolves. If you're going to put that, you know, if you're going to put that mark on them that like uh, something's not right, they're a little racist over there. And then, you know, for African-American employee, you know, and that's not right because you know how in today's society, how this shit blows up. Look, if if it is a situation, if it's a Donald Sterling situation, hey, go at that motherfucker. Good. All day. But if you're not sure and it's just because one of your boys didn't get the job and you got a little bit of frustration with it and then you write about that and you've got a half a million subscribers that listen to you, that could be really dangerous if it's not 100% correct. And I'm look, I don't like I said, I don't know much about David Vanderpool's coaching. I know that it's great to give new people opportunity and he's going to get one. And I'm sure he could be a really good coach. Chris Finch might be a great coach. He might be a failure. It doesn't matter. Gerson Rosas had a hundred percent, a hundred percent of the rule on who he hires and why he hires that person because it's his gut. It's his job on the line eventually. And what if he does hire someone he feels as though is not the right guy. And then that he hires that person and then he gets fired. You know, like, like that doesn't work and he gets fired and then they pat him on the back. Hey, th- hey, I, we know you got fired and you got to move, but hey, thanks for hiring, you know, you know, hiring David Vanderpool. If that was the wrong guy. Look, this has happened 32 times, Bogues, in the last 10 years. 30, 32 times this has happened where uh, a coach got fired during the season. All right. And hiring, hiring the coach, like the head assistant, 
isn't necessarily the best thing to do in some of these situations. You know, out of the 32, I think like four out of the 32 lasted four years or more as a head coach. I think it, I think it was, um, who was the guy that went to Memphis, you said? Lionel Hollins. Yep. I'm sorry, Lionel Hollins, Frank Vogel, I know Randy Whitman. So those are, those are the main guys that sort of made it out of that. But, you know, most of these guys, it's like 18 times out of 32 that the interim coach never coached the next year for the yeah, team. Yeah, I was part of one of those with Milwaukee. Terry Stotts, Larry Kraskoviak took over the second yeah. half of that season. And then the following season, he was gone after that, you know, and now he's coaching in college. So, yeah, that's it, Bogues. That's that's what I'm thinking. What what do you think? What are your thoughts on the situation? I just think it's just, just a tie race into it. I mean, I, I have a few points. My, my first point is Chris Finch is one of the uh, more highly touted assistants up there with Vanderpool, up there with other people. Um, I think it takes away from what should be a very proud moment for him and his family. I think that's a first, the first thing I would say is that he's now embroiled in this when he, you know, it's got really nothing to do with him. He got hired to be a head coach. And now I think his day um, to, to, to enjoy his journey has now been tainted a little bit to an extent, you know, with all this all this attention now bringing race into it. My second point would be, you mentioned it a little bit, is it is it possible Minnesota just wants a full reset? You know, like sometimes teams, more, more often or not, they're not, teams want to blow things up and that means cleaning house. They don't want any remnants of a head assistant that might have certain traits or certain philosophies that are similar to who he coached under. And there's teams that do that and that's, you know, that's what looks like Minnesota's doing. They want a clean slate with their coaching staff and they want a new fresh face with different different kind of theories on things and pick and rolls, whatever it is, right? That's number two. Number three, the GM, Gerson Rosas. He's of Hispanic descent. I mean, what are we saying about him? Are, are, are people really, you know, there's, there's an inference with this Spears article that it's 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 a strategic hiring to not to not have a a black coach or an African American coach like so you're basically calling Rosas so, somewhat uh you know that he's 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 got this strategy about not come on man that's just absolutely ridiculous the fourth one I had a big laugh at there were people that commented this was in articles this was actual reporters that commented that well Saunders was fired and the same day Finch was hired. How was that? How was that a legitimate interview process? Well, let me give all the morons out there a tip. Chris Finch has been in discussions with Minnesota probably for the last two, three, four weeks. That's just the reality of our league. Everything's done quietly behind closed doors. The conversation would have went something like this. Hey, we're close to moving on from Saunders. Are you interested in taking the job? Yes, I am. Let's have further negotiations. Let's see how it goes before we get to a number or, or, or terms. And bang, it happened. They already had him on the short list. He was their guy. That's how that happens for people out there. People that are trying to conflate this now by saying there wasn't an interview process where people could apply and blah, blah, blah. You have no idea how things work in the NBA. Free agency signings, trades, all that shit is done sometimes, sometimes years in advance. The big three is a prime example of that in Miami. That, that was orchestrated well before it was even close to breaking the news wire. The fifth one you hit on as well. Assistants in the off-season become high ta- highly touted assistant coaches in the off-season. Become, it becomes a bidding war, right? So Minnesota probably thought this guy is going to be a top two, top three assistant coming into the off-season that's going to get a head coaching job. We don't want to bid against XYZ, all the other teams that are going to be in the lottery. We want to grab him now. There are five reasons that are legitimate reasons that don't even touch the skin color or um, background or religion or sexuality, whatever you want to, all these different things um, have nothing to do with it. They're, they're, you know, and that's, that's why I struggled with it. I, I think the league, to me, if there's one league or one organization in the world that I think does a pretty good job um, where, where people 
aren't engaging in what Spears claims is a is a conspiracy in the NBA. It's the NBA. The NBA is, you know, predominantly African-American league, um, 75% of the players. And I think they do a pretty good job of, of giving players voices, letting them do a lot of things for their communities from where, where they grew up, where they're playing. I really haven't seen people being blackballed or, you know, not given the right opportunity to get a job based on skin color. I haven't noticed that now. People will say, well, you're a seven-foot white Australian dude that's now living in Australia. You don't know what it's like. Okay, that's a fair point if, if that's the one you want to throw at me. But I'm talking about from what I've seen. I'm a pretty observant guy in my surroundings, whether I'm on a train, a bus, or an NBA locker room, I observe my surroundings and I just study things quietly. And from what I saw, it was um, clubs that I had been involved in in Milwaukee and, and whatnot and Golden State. It was it was pretty good on that, on that front. Um, I, I would follow that up on whoever you are, wherever you are in the world, whatever business you run, whether it's an NBA team or your local diner, I don't care. I think you hire who you think is the best for your particular job. I don't think you look at race, religion, sexuality, gender, all that. I I don't look at that and I might be in trouble for saying that. I look at my interview candidates one by one about how they interview, what their body of work has been, previous jobs, what their references say. Are they hard workers? Do they show up on time? Are they, you know, engaging? Are they are they trying to get better? Are they going to actually give some feedback to their boss that the boss might not like hearing? I like all that stuff. That's what I look for. Now, we want to be very careful if we get to a point which now follows up to the Coaches Association statement. Something really stood out for me in that statement they put out. I mean, they, they put out a statement basically saying, I'll read through it real quick. It's, it's bittersweet when one coach is fired, another is hired. But this is not about individual coaches. We would be remiss not to acknowledge a deeper concern and level of disappointment with the Minnesota head coach hiring process. The Coaches Association understands and respects its organization's right to hire and fire whoever they want whenever it chooses, but it is also our responsibility to point out when an organization fails to conduct a thorough and transparent search of candidates from a wide range of diverse backgrounds. Now, I touched on that. That you can throw out the window because this process started weeks ago, in my opinion. Um, I don't think it was done in three hours like most people think. But anyway, continuing on, during this past offseason, we saw many NBA head coaching vacancies where teams led searches that were both diverse and transparent. This must be the standard. We must establish a level playing field and equal access to opportunity for all coaching candidates. Coach Association has been working closely with the league office on a wide range of initiatives that will improve future coaching searches. In partnership with the NBA, we look forward to sharing details in the weeks to come. That last paragraph is somewhat concerning to me because it sounds very much like there's going to be quotas placed on interview candidates for NBA hiring, the NBA teams hiring coaches. Is that what it read like, reads like to you, Pro? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And you know, it's not a regular situation, though, Bogues. Like, if if Gerson took over like this offseason and he inherited Ryan Saunders and he fired him, he fired him the same time that he fired him, and then he did this with Chris Finch. Maybe I would have been felt a little different towards it and been like, I think, I think David Vanderpool should have finished the year. But it's not like if this was the offseason, it would have been a big pool. And if, if you paid attention to the pool of people that he interviewed for the head job when he hired Ryan and the assistants, and, and it was a very thorough search. But now in the middle of the year, I just think it's different. But I do think that you're going to see probably, you know, more minorities, more African-American, more women into the process of all these jobs to make sure that you you look up, you look everywhere 
for these positions and you give everybody a chance, you know, from all types of backgrounds. And, you, you know, I think the coaches associations is try to piggyback on it and trying to, you know, sort of like, you know, cover themselves as well as trying to set up new initiatives in the in the future for it. It's a slippery slope, in my opinion. I, I don't think it's a good thing. Um, I'm not a fan of, of quotas for anything. Um, I think it's... You know, I'm all about um, equal opportunity to, to to interview for jobs, of course. But this is somewhat, you know, when you, when you go for a quality of outcome, you're playing a dangerous game because um, there will be a, a, you know, there's always you know different people in the community that that are part of different groups and race, religion, creed, sexuality, and and then you know how far how far do you go with that equality um, thing where if you have to start. I mean, my playing devil's advocate. You look at someone like the GM of Minnesota, Gerson Rosas, it's well known that he's worked He's worked with Finch before, right? Knows him pretty well. So, I assume he had him on his short list for th- two, three, four years. At some time, I, I want to get this guy. If I'm ever GM, he'll be my guy, right? So, let's say they go into a into a coaching search in off-season, f- for argument's sake, Minnesota do, and, and you know the Coaches Association has implemented that there needs to be a diverse set of candidates using their quote. I feel like- it's gonna it's gonna happen where Rosas knows he's hiring Finch, and then he's gonna just have four or five interviews that are ticking a box. Is that good for anyone? You're just wasting people's time. You know, you're gonna you're gonna then just appease the rule of the NBA where okay, we need to have this formal process. I'm gonna get four people. I'm gonna fly them to Minnesota, go through this rigorous inter- interview process. When Rosas hypothetically knows I'm hiring Finch, regardless of what these four candidates do i want my guy this is the guy i think can change his franchise i'm all in with this guy but let me just tick these four boxes that's not good neither you're wasting people's time you know and i'd rather be just told like if no matter who i am or what i am if i don't legitimately have a job for that a a job a chance of that job just tell me i'll move on and try to interview somewhere else i don't want to be part of some box tick just to to appease the nba And, and that's the dangerous game you play with 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 quotas and and different things like that and i i just don't think I just don't think it's a good thing um, and yeah, I, I, that's kind of all I really got on it. I think it was just concerning and, and Mark Spears is notorious for these kind of articles where it does create a lot of debate and a lot of backlash and social media and whatnot and, and race gets involved. I just, you know, and then when you throw race into it, it, it sort of devalues, it, it devalues the process of, you know, what David Vanderpool is trying to do. He's trying to be a basketball coach. You know, he's trying to be a basketball coach. He's trying to go through the process. He's trying to be a head coach. He's working on his craft. And you you don't want to be like, you just want to be careful of throwing those words out there and just make it into a situation when it's not. It's not a situation. It's it's like this guy had two years to, you know, impress Gerson, you know, a year and a half. And it just didn't work. It's fine. He'll get a job. You know, he's very well liked. He will get a job. Yeah, he's going to be head coach eventually. Like, it's just a matter of time. Without question. Like, like him, Jamal Mosley, you know, there's a few There's a few guys on a short list, coaches, assistant coaches that I think, you know, will be head coaches and they'll be very good head coaches. It doesn't matter if they're minority or not, they're going to be very good head coaches. And I think that, you know, when you when you just make it about race, when it's this situation really isn't about it. It's just they they made a call on a coaching candidate and they just went forward. And I just, I, I'm, I'm very conscious of that. And look, there's time and place to throw the race card into it. And if that is a real bad thing going on, but this wasn't one of those situations and it just sort of devalues it. And, 
you know, it just makes it a situation when it's not. And like I said, the Timberwolves are probably doing their best. Gerson Rosas is doing his best. And now Chris Finch is going to try to do his best. But you don't want, you know, ideas getting in people's heads and it's going to make their journey from here going to be a problem. And, and that's that's where I have an issue with it. But, um, yeah, you know, everybody I, sees I, I the think, world different. Yeah, I think you, you also just subtly mentioned that um, maybe Rosas, like I said, came in into that coaching search no matter – even if Vanderbilt was was a candidate where he just thought, Finch is my guy. There might be a loyalty there. There might be a friendship there. There might be – maybe it's for that reason where that that's definitely questionable where you're like, hey, like this guy was qualified but you hired your boy. But that's human nature. So, maybe, maybe that – maybe it could be that extreme. But like to throw – like you said, just to throw race into it straight away, I, I just don't – I don't buy what you're selling, Mark Spears. Um, but – I mean, some people do, and some people will criticize me for saying that, but it is what it is. But I think um, I wish the best of luck to Chris Finch. Uh, I wish the best of luck to, to Coach Vanderpool, and hope he, he's coaching a team next season or the season after. And it'll be it'll be fun to watch where that all ends up with the Minnesota Timberwolves if they can they can turn that shit show around there because it's uh, it's been it's been pretty bad for them in the last 10, 15 years. But um, moving on, we'll get away from that one. We'll let's get into the Boston Celtics. So. Your, uh, your beautiful Boston accent will do this one well. But awesome. as of time of recording, they got a game right now. It looks like they might beat Indiana. But as of time of recording, they are 15 and 17. They are 3 and 7 in their last 10, and they've lost three straight, which hopefully they'll, they'll win this game against Indiana. But, I mean, what is going on? It's just They just look really, really clunky. I don't know if the roster fits together well. There were rumors a couple of years of, um, I don't know if this is playing its part of, of Tatum and Brown wrestling for that number one on the superstar of this squad. Is that playing an effect right now? Because they're both having great years throw Kemba in there who's a volume shooter in my opinion would be Marcus Smart he's a massive loss for him I think he's a rough and tough guy intangibles does the little things gets on the on the floor he has that that mean streak in him where he'll start a fight if if their energy's down he'll get into someone and try to roll his troops up that way and I love his game um, he's one of those guys you you love to you love to hate if he's not on your team but you love him if he is and I think he's an integral part of him but I think he's a big loss but I mean do you see anything else going on with the Celtics right now I think that they're, they're, they're dealing with some stuff. Like Kemba Walker definitely missing the first part of the season hurt, you know, trying to get him back into shape and trying to get him going. Losing Marcus Smart for a while. Well, Marcus Smart, my bad. My Boston accent didn't really show. And losing him because he's, he's the glue that sort of glues that team together. So having those guys play together for long stretches of time is going to help. Um, I think Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, look, you've got the hottest pot you do took care of. You got two all-stars two all-star level players that you sign long-term going forward. And now you have to just mix and match pieces around those guys to sort of go forward with them. But Jason Tatum, if if he wants to be the player that he envisions, he's going to have to really start, you know, stop changing some of the things that he does. He, he tries to emulate Kobe Bryant. I read a lot of articles of what he does. Well, he might emulate, you know, Kobe Bryant on the offensive end. But on the defensive end, he must have fucking missed that DVD because he plays zero fucking defense, zero defense, zero intensity on defense, off the ball defense, get beat. Like Kobe, like he took such a focus and a love for not only shutting people down, but showing energy on the defensive end, flying around the court, getting stops off the ball, you know, helping, you know, helping a teammate that got beat, helping the helper, sitting on somebody's legs, trying to be like have this energy on defense and he needs to step that up on the defensive end. Offensively, he takes, he just lives on a steady diet of these tough, 
home run like shots, sidestep, step back, you know, you know, you know with, a, with three hands in his face. You know what I'm saying? Like, he, he doesn't like as many of those like fadeaways that he takes and shots, threes that he takes. He needs to be able to drive the ball, draw two on the ball and get his teammates easy looks. Kobe was so good at being able to draw two and kick the defenders. Yeah, he took a lot of a lot of tough fucking shots. There's no question about it. But the simplicity of his game that he could, you know, he could find teammates. He can make easy plays. He can make, you know, get easy shots. And I know where we're going in, in this game of tough shots, contested threes, step back, sidestep, and all that bullshit. He needs to really get to a place and build off being simple. And then late game clock, late shot clock, trying to be more creative and and trying to take the tough shots. But it starts on the defensive end for him. And it starts with that team defensively because it seems like those guys don't have that passion on defense except if it's Marcus Smart, you know, like or Tristan Thompson's not a bad defender. But like these other guys got to really step it up defensively and then shot selection is huge for this team. Look, Tatum and Brown shoot decent percentages, Bogues, like across the board. Statistically, they're pretty good. Like Tatum, you know, only shoots about 44 from the field and that's not bad for that position. But like for the most part, statistically, you would look at him like, wow, he's fucking an all-star without question. But he needs to be able to, if he wants to be a dominating player, he needs to be able to do it out of a place of simplicity. And also on the defensive end and being like, I'm going to fucking dominate on and off the ball. And like, because it's just over dribble, over dribble, over dribble. And then he'll give it to somebody with a time bomb with two on the fucking clock. It has to be like simple, 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 simple. And then getting his teammates involved when he gets two defenders on the ball. And I think it starts with him. Now, Jalen Brown has his warts too, don't get me wrong. But Jalen Brown's a pretty simplistic player, you know, and it gets a lot of, you know, just gets a lot of action that way. But I think defensively, they really need to step up and, and, and show more energy, show more hot, and then just move the ball and get good shots and stop with the hero ball bullshit on most of the possessions because that's what it seems like it is. What do you see, folks? If I put you on the spot as a GM, who would you build your team around out of Brown and Tatum as of today? It's funny. I would rather watch Brown play. He's much more enjoyable because he's simple, a lot more straight line drives and a lot less tough shots. But Tatum seems to- The ceiling's high with Tatum. Is that what you're going to say? Yeah. Yeah, Tatum. And then when you need baskets, Tatum can get them for you. I mean, he is- I mean, he does have a lot of fucking talent. He just has to start doing the right things offensively and cut down the steady diet of, you know, of those things. I would keep those two guys together. And I would, you know, you got to, you know, people are so quick to say, get rid of the coach, get rid of G- Danny Ainge and all that. That's bullshit. Like the coach is good. Danny's fine. You know, they got to play together. You know, they got a little messed up because of the slow start. But I think this team's okay. Yeah, they're going to have to make some moves, I think, going forward to put some other pieces around these two. But I think, I, I think you go for what you have. I don't think that they have many other trade pieces you know, like on the team, like, I don't know what you're going to get, you know, if you trade Kemba Walker or some of these other guys. And I would keep, I mean, you got two all-stars. That's tough to have. Even if you say that they're both not all-stars because, you know, they're not a 500 team, that's fine. But they're two all-star level players. I have Tatum in the top 15. I got him at 12 in the league and I've got Jalen Brown at like 25, 24. So it's like, you got two guys in the top 30 and they, 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 you know, they're good players. They seem like good guys, but I just think you're probably gonna have to make some moves in the future, you know, and develop some of your young guys. But 
I'm not I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna like jump off the boat right now and like start trading guys and firing people. I just think they gotta like it's got it it has to come from the players. Cause let's be honest, the coaches, there's only so much they're gonna say in meetings and fucking tape and all this shit. They gotta say together, like, look, our defense is horseshit. We're not giving the effort. Our ball's not fucking moving. We're taking too many tough fucking shots. Let's move that fucking ball. It's a straight line drive. Let's get spot up shots. Let's stop the fucking bullshit. Let's stop, stop playing like the mob plays around the league with all these fucking tough shots and contested threes all the time and stop playing fucking basketball and, and playing hard. Yeah, I think Smart's a big one for me. I think he he's energy and physicality and he's a kind of do-what-you-need do guy. But it's the first – I think it's the first bit of heavy – adversity that Stevens has faced in a regular season they usually cruise along pretty well I mean obviously they don't have their their arena full with those Boston vans who create a great great atmosphere and a great home court but they haven't really I don't know the last time that they were you know under 500 this far into a season almost at a halfway point so it'll be good to see how he's one of the most well-respected and best coaches in the league to see how he bounces back I know he's a huge X and O's guy he'll get in the in that film room and break things down so I'm looking forward to see them bounce back but you'd be kind of um yeah I mean we just had to mention it because it's just glaring they've just they just had a shocking probably last month and yeah okay Kemba's out of the lineup but like you said they've still got two players that are in the top 25 with some pretty good role players they, they definitely should be doing better than they are but um the all-star voting well, fi- finalized we had a bit of a discussion about it last week with the starters i mean i think when you look at the reserves so western conference chris paul paul george damian lillard donovan mitchell rudy gobert zion williamson anthony davis and then on the eastern conference reserves you've got james harden julius randall former teammate of mine really happy for him he deserves it his first time at the uh, all-star game jason tatum jalen brown zach levine ben simmons nikola Vucevic. i think they got it pretty close to right um, as far as the mm-hmm. reserves went, I, I had, funnily enough, I had my guy that I was unlucky to miss out was Sabonis, and he just got announced as an injury replacement. So, <laughs> how about that? There goes my uh, my part of the pod. But he was, I thought he was hard done by regardless. I thought either Tatum or Brown get in one of those, and then I think you had to put Sabonis in place of one of those two guys because his numbers were way better than both Tatum and Brown, and they had more wins at that point. So, I, that's why I thought he was an unlucky miss out. But now with the, um, the injury, Kevin ran out they've put Sabonis in so my guy's being picked did you did you have a guy for us that you thought was hard done by yeah I thought you know uh Chris Middleton was a guy that I thought you know on the east that uh you know he's having a pretty a, a really good year he's had a, a bunch of explosive games I think he's averaging like 26 and 20 points six rebounds six assists I mean shooting over 40 from three uh former all-star as well um I thought he was pretty good I thought I thought he probably should have gotten a look on the east. Are we talking east and west or just east for now? Just give me one guy, Chris Middleton. Yeah, I would say I would I would say Middleton. Yeah, I'm I'm a Middleton fan. All right, I'm going to give you the Jalen Rose rebuttal, which I liked. I heard from him this week about people complaining about who's made the roster. Okay, so Chris Middleton's your guy that missed out. Who is he replacing? I'd probably replace him with Vuj. Uh, Vuj. I'm not going to do the Perkins and and take nine minutes to. Uh, <laughs> pronounce his last name because I, I don't know how to do it so i'm just gonna call him vooge uh i would say probably either vooge or um or brown from boston yeah. one of those two i'd yeah. say vooge 
Now nah, you know what, Bob Brown, they got two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I think yeah, it's one of the one of the rare years where I where I agree with most of the picks, and I think it was a pretty hard year for him. I think Vucevic has had a great year individually, but they they're not playing very good basketball as a team. They've had some injuries, so I'd, he was he was lucky in, in my estimation to make it. Um, but you know, everyone, Chris Paul was an interesting one for me though. Like I thought, okay, Phoenix has turned around, but the fact that he got in over his teammate, I think, was a head scratcher for me. You know, I thought that Booker's- It's got nothing to do with the 48 insurance commercials that will be going on during the All-Star game, is it? Yeah, but surely Booker gets in before him. Booker's now been announced as an injury replacement for Anthony Davis, so all is well there. But I don't know how you put Chris Paul over Devin Booker, who, I mean, Booker's the- If he's not having a big night, they don't win. You know, Chris Paul, obviously great leader um, from the point guard position, does a lot of good things. They've turned their um, franchise around this season, wins wins and losses-wise. But that was a head-scratcher for me. I thought he easily could have missed out. I guess, it, like you said, you, you do those insurance commercials and you run the NBA. <laughs> you know, different doors open up for you, which could be a could be a bit, you know an issue that we can raise next week about um you know maybe it was it was a it was a friendly selection is that is that was that the right the right uh, selection process was it a you know was the interview process for him making the All Star game done right? Like I said, I don't get, I hate the fucking All Star game, so I can care less. But you know, hey, look, they want to have Chris Paul. He's he's made it a bunch of times, and he's got a bunch of friends and. You know, they like him over there. Why not? I mean, I don't give a fuck. Really. I bring out that banana boat to All-Star Weekend, get uh, D-Wade and LeBron on it, ride behind a boat. For those of you who remember that photo back in the day. Yeah, I do. Fact or fake news, what do you got for us this week, bro? All right. First thing, Bogues, usually ask me, I'm going to ask you, what do you think about Trey Young? Do you think right now, not not like 10 years from now or five years from now, right now, is Trey Young a winning player in the NBA? Fake news as of today. He's very good individually. I think he's still trying to find himself. I think he's still in that young fella mentality of a high a high draft pick that's trying to solidify himself with numbers. Usually those guys take three, four, five years to figure it out. And then they start to realize I need I need to rely on my teammates a little more. I need to give them as much confidence as I've got. And they can kind of, you know, Steph figure that out real quick where he, he was happy to take a back seat at times and be off the ball and all that stuff we've spoken about at length in numerous podcasts. As of today, no, I would say it's fake news, but he's, you know, hopefully he figures it out and, and makes that switch. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's fake news right now. Like you said, I mean, statistically, same thing with Jane, like we talked about with Jalen Brown, like you look at him statistically and across the board, I mean, he's putting up great numbers. But if you watch him play, and look, he can do some great things. He's a great finisher at this point. He's pretty. He's very good pick and roll scorer. Uh, not a great shooter, but he's got deep range and he, and he can make shots and get hot. But he needs to be able to play more off the ball. When he doesn't have the ball in his hands, that's when that's the difference. Like I know that their their front office wanted wanted to have a you know a, a Steph Curry clone when they drafted him. Well, if you're watching the full Steph Curry and not just the three-point shooting and not just the finishing and the pick and roll play. But if you're watching the off the ball play, like we talked about in, in the past podcast about how he just cuts off the ball, you know, cuts for layups, cuts on the other side for threes, always moving and always doing things. It seems like when he has the ball in his hands, that's when he's focused. When he doesn't have the ball in his hands, that's when he struggles. And he holds the ball a lot. He over dribbles, over dribbles. And I know that's how these players play. I know how the great players are playing like that, but he needs to be able to get his teammates easy shots. He needs to be able to move off the ball. He needs to be able to do more things and get his teammates 
open looks. And remember, there's a, in my opinion, there's a big difference between being an assist guy and being a playmaker. And I think Trey Young can throw lobs. He's a good assist guy. And he can get his, he knows where to throw the ball. But as far as making the right play and making winning plays, it's a lot different than just averaging nine and a half assists a game. So I think he need he you know he'll hopefully he'll learn in time. But right now, fake news. He's not a win. He's not a winning player in my opinion. I think the one on five logo threes kill me with him. They kill me. They, uh, you know, they're the ones that I think, you know, you want, everyone wants to shoot the ball like Steph Curry and Trey's getting there. You know, Steph really doesn't even take the logo three one on five in transition and he's the best shooter in the world off the dribble, arguably. So I think, yeah, that that's why I don't think he's a winning player. It's plays like that and he'll do that three or four times a game. Literally, if you watched some, some, some Hawks games, all four of his teammates will just be crossing half court and he'll be jacking a logo three and you're just like, uh, you can get a better shot than that with 21 seconds in the shot clock for sure. I'll tell you what, a lot of analytics guys watching that have to take a cold shower after watching that. They love that though. So, you know, yeah, he's no, definitely all, he, he makes the all that. analytic team. No, no. I, I, don't, I don't know what <laughs> yeah. the number, I'm probably wrong. I'm probably going to get his, you know, Harrell Bob or someone's going to text me and say, well, the numbers exactly on logo <laughs> threes with 21 seconds on the shot clock are this, but I just, my brain can't comprehend if they, if they are, if those analytics numbers say that's a better shot than, you know, getting a five on five set, oh, geez, I'm, I'm getting old and I'm, I'm just stupid, I guess, but um, <laughs> that's where we're going. No, nah, just, uh. If those analytics guys go at you, just show them the price of Bitcoin and uh, and GameStop. They'll be all right. They'll 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 uh, they'll get off you real quick. They'll, yeah. they'll they'll be loving life right then. Yeah, doing well. So Washington Wizards, after a dreadful start, is actually sort of coming into their own a little bit as far as you know as far as the NBA standings. Right now, they're on twelfth in the league, twelfth uh, in the East. I'm sorry, with eight and a half out. Um, of first and two, only two out of the 10 spot. Do they make the playoffs after the dreadful start? I have to go fact because I picked them as my damn team to bounce back. <laughs> they were my one team that didn't make the playoffs last season that I said would this season. So I'm going to keep riding that train. It's been, it's been a bumpy one. We lost a few wheels along the way. A few carriages kind of derailed and fell off a bridge in some water, but we're, we're still chugging along. There's still steam coming out of there. I mean, Russ, love him or hate him. He's going to give you what he's got. Bill's having a elite, you know, Hall of Fame type year. So, you know, they've had some injuries to deal with, some junky lineups at times. They lost their starting big man in Bryant with a, with a knee. So, you know, they've bounced back pretty well. It could have went, it definitely, as we know, pro, it could have went that other way where, you know, 30, 35 games in, all of a sudden, Beal's not playing another game for the rest of the season. Westbrook's not playing. They're shutting down their superstars and they're saying, look, we're just going to try to get that number one pick. So I've, I've been happy to see that they haven't thrown the towel in and credit goes to them and their staff and their players have been very, very professional and I hope they make it. Yeah, I, I'm going with fact. I hate, I you know, you know me, I hate agreeing with you because, you know, that's the fucking worst thing I want to do in the world is agree with your ass. But I will say that it's fact. I think that, you know, they're getting everybody healthy you know, they got attacked by that COVID stuff. Um, right now, it's so close. We talked about it in past podcasts about how close the league, but both divisions are. And then Bertans has had a terrible first, like, 30 games, like, not doing what he's done in the past as far as shooting the ball consistently and being a, a more of a scoring threat. So, I think he'll have a, a, a much better second half and get be, be a lot more consistent. I think Westbrook's going to, you know, continue to up his play. And then Bradley Beal playing at the level he's playing at. I think, I mean, especially with now the 10 teams that are in instead of eight. If it was eight, I'd probably say no. But I think the the team that they'll leapfrog is Atlanta. 
And I think that they're going to get in, in, you know, in that nine or 10 spot. Let's hope so. Oh, yeah, the 10. Yeah. yeah, the 10. The 10 is the other thing that I keep forgetting about. So, good point. I think, yeah, I think hard fact on that one then because it's the top 10. Hey, you, you got a fucking concussion. You actually gave me a compliment. That's the fucking <laughs> no, first time for everything, my friend. I just can't get my head around the 10. It just keeps, it keeps, I just keep getting blanks because I think playoffs top eight, ooh, it's going to be tough. And then you forget about those two playing games, which technically is that still making the playoffs? I don't know. That's that's debatable. Maybe we should we should change it to whoever wins those playing games is it really a playoff team because it might save some jobs though, Pro, because technically if you finish in 10th, you've made the playoffs. <laughs> you can't get fired. <laughs> good point. Fucking good point as usual. All right, Bogues, last one, brother. I'm going to go back to you know Australian roots here. Will Ben's, Ben Simmons will attempt a career-high 12 three-point shots this season, breaking his previous personal best of 11 attempts in 2018. What's he at right now? He has attempted six. He is one for six, shooting 17% from the three-point line. Will he Ooh. attempt tw- uh, more than 11 this season? And we're in, what, 30 games in... <laughs> I think so. I think you will, just because I think you'll. I think you'll throw up a couple of half court heaves. He, he ends up with the ball sometimes late quarter. You know, with four or five seconds, he's a pretty quick fella, so he'll he'll get the ball out the court and just th- shoot some prayers. Surely you shoot maybe five of those in the next 35, 40 games. So yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll go. He's gonna he's gonna break his record, and he might even get to fourteen and obliterate it. For the first time, I'm going to use analytics to my side. I know it takes me four hours to make Minute Rice, and I'm not the smartest motherfucker on the planet. But I will say, since he's, out, since he's attempted six, seven, and now six in the last three years on threes, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say, and that's part of his problem. I don't care how many he's going to make. I don't care how many he's going to miss. If he wants to improve that, I don't care how many Instagram and TikTok videos he has of shooting threes in the offseason. If you don't shoot them during the games, you're not going to get better at it. I say he's going to get to 11. I say he gets to 11. He will not go over 12. Yeah, so no, I will say fake news. But do you think all right, with Ben, right, I know he needs to – I think just I think just shooting one or two a game so it's at least respectable where it's like, oh, it's late – you know, late in the quarter or he might jack one up. We need to kind of somewhat respect it. But it will open up his game. That's a no-brainer. But do you think sometimes an emphasis is over overcooked with guys like that? Because there have been players that attack the basket so aggressively – and then all of a sudden, they, they, they find that three-point shot mid to late career and then they just completely move away from attacking the rim because it's an easier shot. You get three points for it. You're not getting hit in the paint. But you obviously don't think it's, yeah. it's overblown with Ben. Uh, I think he has to be self-aware of that for sure. But it's not going to start until he starts shooting threes in games. Like you said, he doesn't have to shoot eight. There's no reason to shoot eight. But he's got to be able to shoot one or two. It could be getting off the ball, you know, he gives the ball up on pick and roll, respaces, and then gets an open shot. I mean, there's a million possessions in a game. He's got to get comfortable shooting them first. And then he'll start making those adjustments and changes to be actually making some semi-consistently. But I think players, and I don't, I don't like playing the game of I, I get inside someone's head and, and know what they're thinking. But I do know what players are trying to develop their shot. They're, you know, they're afraid or reluctant to shoot the ball because they're embarrassed where, wherever it's going to go. The first step in his development as a shooter, he's already done it. He, you see him, you know, making it in the offseason, doing those changes to his shot. But the next phase to that 
is actually shooting them in the game. And you got to be able to shoot to a game. You know, draw them up in ATOs where you're getting them a couple of shots because, you know, in two years from now, if he has that, if they has that mentality now, in two years, he could be at 32, 34%. He doesn't need to be Reggie Miller. He just has to be someone who can shoot it 33, 34%. And then it, that'll be fine. It will open up a lot more of his game instead of everybody going under and going under and going under and going under. You know, yeah. just start shooting them. You know, and, that's, that's and I think it, he'll get better. It puts him in the dunker spot late game or at, at maximum a post, post-up presence. Um, and then with Joel out there, who's your main post threat already, it, it kind of the spacing shrinks up and, they, you know, Doc obviously he's got a – I know Brett Brown did that and Ben didn't like playing out of the dunker, absolutely hates it for that matter. And it's kind of like unless you're going to shoot the three ball, he can't really spread you on the perimeter. So it's amazing that he's still playing at the level that he is all-star-wise with – the emphasis on on three point shooting he's still an all star without having that in his game so it's been incredible really interesting to watch yeah it's incredible yeah all right moving on to q and a ab i'm one for one for my questions so far hoping it turns into a streak well it, it did and just quickly if i made he said if i make the podcast can you give a shout out to my two daughters ava and livy so ava and livy hopefully you block your ears out when pros swearing so much oh my fault <laughs> <laughs> Question for Pro. Oh. Backdrop being transparent, salaries discussion last episode, or sort of. How much would Pro charge Kobe or an NBA player to work him out? I assume I assumed it covered his tab at In N Out Burger. Do many do it in season or off season now? I like this question because you can touch on I think you you've been quoted as saying you you never charge Kobe, but I think the spin-off of this question, which I'll leave to you because you've been part of this world, is the big money to be made with off-season training centers or personal training coaches for NBA players. Go ahead, bro. Yeah. So, with Kobe, I never got paid. Um, I never really was thinking about money. I, I was already getting a salary with Tim Grover working for, you know, for Attack Athletics and, and we had clients and, you know, if it wasn't for Tim, I wouldn't have gone with Kobe. And he asked me on three three times, he says, what do you want? I got to give you something. So I, I never, I, I never, I never charged because I was, I'm sort of like fucked up and excuse me, please don't have your daughters listen to that one. But I, I'm sort of like, hey, if I did say, if I even gave him an amount, right? I, I was thinking about this the last couple of years. Like if I gave him an amount, would he have said, nah, fuck that or, or fired me or said, oh, you're just doing it about money. I, I wanted to make sure that he knew that I was doing it for him, not, not for Twitter, not for, you know, not for like people to say, look at me, what I'm doing for Kobe. But like, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I was there for him and I was learning from him. So yeah, I didn't get paid from Kobe. And, you know, it's a very interesting thing with, with trainers in the off season. A lot of them now, because there's so many of them. See, when I did it, there was like three across the country that did it, four across the country. And we would charge about 12, 13,000 a month for workouts on the court and in the weight room, sort of that effect. Right now, because there are so many trainers out there and players sometimes don't want to pay, that they'll get a guy, they won't pay him or they'll pay him very little. In exchange, the trainer will use them in videos and put them on Instagram to get all these like high paying high school and little kids to train. And some of these guys make three or $400,000 a year based on just getting all these NBA guys to work out, barely charge them anything. And then 
you know, and then use the, that to market themselves to be able to work out all these high school kids and, you know, high school and college kids that see them working out these NBA all-stars and then want to join their gym. The top level guys probably charge about 10000 a month. I don't even know where to start these days. I don't think many NBA guys would want to work with me these days because I am brutally fucking honest. And again, hopefully your daughter's not listening to that. I'm brutally honest with players. And I'm not, I'm not like brutal where I'm just going to like go at them and, and make them feel bad about themselves. But I'm brutally honest. If, they, if, if I think they're going to be out of the league, if they don't turn around, I'll tell them that. I'm not going to suck up to them. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be afraid to lose them as a client. And that's why I'm an acquired taste. That's why Kobe was so good. And I was so good with Kobe because Kobe wanted to hear that. Not, no, not many people talk to Kobe like I talked to him and like Tim Grover talked to him because we didn't care. If we lost, if we lost him as a client, we lost him as a client. So, but some of these guys are charging these days about 10, 12,000 a month to work with guys. And then what they'll do is during the off season to, uh, you know, to make more money off the guys, they'll do like film breakdowns. And then they'll like travel to their town once or twice a month to work them out. And they'll charge them still eight, nine, 10,000 a month to do the film work. You know, that, that stuff wasn't really being done before I did it with Kobe, but now the, you know, trainers are sort of adding that to the program. So yeah. that's usually what NBA players are, are, you know, are paying guys these days. Yeah. And some players have individual coaches that are just with them full time. So I've got a, f- a friend of mine who's, uh, you know, working with, with, a, with a player individually, I won't mention just for confidentiality reasons, but I mean, he's getting around two to 300 K a year plus living expenses to be a full time, you know, doing, doing treatment, doing, you know, stretching the weights program, basically everything for them, right? Were you part of Grover's? I know Grover, I think had, so some of these off season programs, they weren't just basketball. So they were, they had physios and masseuses there as part of the fee. They had um, food before and after training. It was so, it was all inclusive, right? For about 10k a month or something yeah so we when i started we were in like this small gym called hoops to gym where he trained mj um when he trained with mj i came in right about after mj retired came in about 2003 so so not too far after mj left so we had about 20 clients or so anywhere from nba all-star d wade you know, we had like D. Wade, Jawan Howard, Michael Finley, Sean Marion, a bunch of other guys. And then all, all the way, all the way down to high level overseas guys. And then what happened was a couple of these trainers were going to, you know, get big facilities and we had to sort of keep up with the Joneses. So Tim had the idea of having a four court facility in Chicago and he built this facility that was fantastic. It was in Chicago in down, you know, in the city, you know, a little bit west of the city. You know, in the, it's still, but still in, in Chicago and, you know, gated parking, um, you know, basketball workout. You had, you know, sleep rooms where you could take naps. You had physio rooms. You had a 10,000 square foot weight room. You know, you had a lounge, 125 inch flat screen TV, uh, catered lunch after workouts. I mean, he really went all in. The problem is right when he, right around the time he built it, 2008 came. You know, the everything, you know, everything got fucked in the market. And then also NBA players stopped really paying big money for trainers and started going at like LA, 
you know, started going to other cities. Back then, a lot of players came through Chicago to work out because they wanted to do those runs. Like, like Grover would have these like workouts. So you'd come in and work out. Like Jawan Howard and Michael Finley always came in around 8 a.m. to work out. And then like you had like one hour shifts all the way to about one o'clock. Then we would play from like two to three, 32 to four. Everybody would come and play. There'd be 25 you know, 25 players, about 21 of them are NBA players on the court. He'd have NBA referees come in, three-man crews. He would have towel service and Gatorade and, and nutrition stuff. And like, it was fantastic. But yeah, he had this big time facility that just couldn't keep up with it, you know, because of, again, the recession hit. And then NBA players just started going to these other cities to work out and it just sort of dried up. Yeah, I, I, we we worked out there actually when I was at the Milwaukee Bucks um, as part of our NBA. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember you then because you probably didn't hear you talking shit at that point. <laughs> I was I was probably eating fried chicken in the back, but yeah, I saw your ass. Yeah, so it was it was an amazing facility. The one thing I do remember that a few of the guys told me that if you I don't know if I'm getting this right, but if you made a left out of the car park and another left, you were in one of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago, <laughs> something along those yeah, lines. Yeah, yeah, you have about a. You'd have about an 11-second lifespan if you took a left. If you took a right, you're good. Yeah. Ironically enough, nothing ever happened to me, you know, being in well, that shit. place. The thing, had, the thing had prison fencing around it. It was prison fencing. There were video cameras everywhere. It was secure as you could get. There was a dude at the front desk, a security guard, I remember. So, they had, a, they yep. had that thing locked down like a yeah. bank. No doubt. His name was Body. Yeah. His name was Body. Do not fuck with Body. Nobody did. Yeah. But yeah, we, we locked that place up pretty good. It was It was a cool spot. Like- you know, a couple of things didn't go our way. Like we were going to be the training center of the USA basketball. Um, if, you know, Chicago was supposed to win the, the Olympics, they went to Brazil. And so that, did, that didn't go through. And, and we, we just missed out on a bunch of other stuff that, that, that probably would have really helped us going forward. But we were just a little bit unlucky with that. And like I said, recession and all this other stuff. But uh, it was a great spot to work. I mean, great runs, great, great guys working out and it just was one of those things where like it just you know bad timing bad luck but uh it was a great place to work it was it was a beautiful facility so it was a, sh- it was a shame that that went under but i remember that place and it was it was great next one hey bogues absolutely love the pod was that you making that dumb noise while singing the ot genesis song coco on the warriors team playing all those times talk us through the song and the camaraderie you guys had in that year 2015-16 warriors season and types of characters these guys are on off the court um, and that's from Lockie in Kilsyth which is in Melbourne and obviously that sorry that last question was from Trent Dixon in Brisbane I forgot to mention that name so shout out to Trent so I don't know if you remember this pro do you remember the song that he's talking about that Lockie's talking about yeah yeah I remember the song um, so we used to I don't know why but the, the, it became a routine for us whenever we won a game on the road whenever we're flying right before we're about to take off someone would put on that song OT Genesis so I'm in love with the Coco, whatever, right? So we'd all just started singing along with it. Now it became like it grew its own legs. Someone posted on Instagram, like most things, it went viral. And then it became a thing where after a win, fans would be like, where's the song? Where's the song? So the dumb noise you're referring to is my good friend, Leandro Barbosa, Brazilian blur. He'd make like a goat <laughs> sound in the middle of the song, which then grow its own legs social, on social media. So this became like its own subculture, which was really cool. The kind of annoying part of it was some some idiot out there wrote to the Warriors <laughs> and complained that we we're singing about cocaine. Essentially, Coco. It's a oh, rap. Geez. It's a rap song. I'm in love with the Coco. I get it. There's way worse rap songs out there than that one. Let's just be honest. There's way wor- worse lyrics. There's way worse whatever. Right. So our uh-huh. owner, our owner, got a little bit 
you know, scared by that that note received from a fan um, with the current climate, and we basically got we got banned from doing it. We got told you can't do it anymore, and that was pretty kind of disappointing. I, I get that, like, there's there's no one on the team that was doing cocaine. We weren't glorifying people to take cocaine. It just happened to be a song that stupidly got put on one night after a win, and then it was just something that we had a laugh about, and Barbosa's making that funny noise, and it just goes to show how bubble-wrapped society is and people are these days that, yeah, basically for the fans out there wondering why they got squashed, you know, that was the very Jeez. reason, yeah. Hey, Bogues, before we uh, go to the next question, didn't we, did we talk about Draymond Green and his ejection in the game the other night? No, we ran over that one. Um Rookie error by me, I skipped over that one. But yeah, we had that on the run sheet. So for those wondering, Draymond had a blow up. They were up two with a handful of seconds left. Was it 15, 20 seconds left? There was a questionable jump ball call earlier in the game, which went Charlotte's way, I think. And then it happened again. And there was actually a timeout call. I ran it back slowly in replay. There was a wrestle for the ball. A teammate called timeout. When Haywood kind of, was it Haywood, I think, got the ball for a split second before it was tied up. They caught a timeout and Draymond lost his shit. Apparently, he went, yeah. out, went out another player, got a tee, then went at the ref, got a tee, got ejected. They make both they made, they made both free throws and then Rosier hits the game winner. And I guess we wanted to talk about Draymond Green. And for me, it's hard to taper a guy like that because most of the time that his fire and attitude is a net positive for the team. It is something he brings on a daily basis. He ruffles feathers. He gets the best out of you at training. He's an intense figure. He's competitive, whether you're playing basketball or poker or whatever you're playing. Now, one out of maybe you'd say 30, 40 times, one out of 20. I don't know what, what number you want to have. It's not a huge number, but it's, it might cost you a game every now and then. You know, the, the infamous final series where LeBron basically got him suspended, let's be honest, and sent all those films in and was complaining about it publicly and got him suspended from, from a game in the finals and it shifted mo- momentum and they won. Draymond is sometimes in that boat where he can he can lose it too much and cost you a game. But I feel like if you go to him and you say – no more line in the sand. We don't want to. We don't want you to be. You can't be emotional like that. I think it actually detracts from who he is and what is making him such a great basketball player. So I don't know how you see that, bro. Yeah, I mean, you got to have some restraint and understand when that's going to be a problem. Like he just has to be more self-aware and know where and when. I mean, he's never stopped talking on the court. So like referees sort of are used to him, but he's got to be. He's just got to understand that, like, look, some that that's going to cost them in that situation, you know, in that time and score situation, that that's going to cost them the game. And look, like you said, that that stuff's mostly a positive for them. And he knows, like, you know, he's been around long enough to know how far he could push it, you know, before it's an issue. But, you know, I think that that, that, that just puts you in harm's way. I think he's, he's smart enough where you learn from it. He's probably going to be better with it. You know, but he's got to understand that, like, there is a line that you can't cross and it's going to end up messing, you know, messing your wins up and it's going to just mess, mess situations like that up. But, you know, I'm not a big fan of going nuts on referees. I just don't, I don't understand it because of the fact that, like, it's never going to really help you, you know, but some guys do it, they get away with it. That's what they do. But I think it's a major problem across the league. But in this instance, I just think he's got to know better when to, like, when he can go sort of nuts and when he can't and what he can do when he goes nuts. And I just think that that was an easy call. It was, you know, and I don't think he even fought it. I think he even admitted like, yeah, that that went too far. That's the thing. He'll usually admit his wrongs, but yeah, it can cost him a game. But I guess my question goes back to 
you know, the 19 out of 20 games, he's got that high intensity and you're getting that passion. Do you just take that one out of 20 where you're like, hey, it might cost us a game? Um, Because like I said, I I don't think he's a guy that you want to taper emotionally because I think it's such a big part of his game where it's, yeah, it's just a tough one. And and he's had sages, he's had ebbs and flows when I was there where he knew it was an issue and tried to work on it. And there were some games where he was like on his best behavior, right? Like you could notice that he, you noticed that he was cognizant of, of, um, not not being that guy, but then I think your natural instinct and passion. And I would kind of disagree with you with the referee thing. Like he gets he gets into it with refs a lot. I think it it works for him more than it doesn't. To be honest, sometimes I think as far as flagrance and all that, I think he gets the rough end of the stick because of reputation. But when you talk so fucking much to the referees, you get away with so much more talking. Like the guys, I felt like that were quiet, never really said much, and they said, "Oh, come on, that's a fucking foul." T. <laughs> Whereas Draymond's yeah. talking every possession and sometimes the refs, whether they like to admit it or not, they're just like, oh man, not this guy again. Like, Not that they'd give him a call because of that, but I feel like it's that kind of chess game on the basketball court. And I think sometimes it does work in his favor because he just puts so much pressure on him that he, two moving screens in two possessions and he's cussing out the ref, he'll then get away with four in a row. You know, and I think yeah. it, it can be argued that sometimes, sometimes it might pay dividends. But yeah, you can't, you just can't have a guy cost you a game. I'm sure Steve would address that with him. And Draymond, like, like he said at his press conference, he put his hand up and said, "I fucked up. On to the next one. I'll be better." Which is kind of all you can ask for, right? Yeah, and that's the one thing I do love about the kid, and he's always been like that. You know, he'll he's he's the loudest mouth in the room in every room. But I'll tell you what, he'll admit when he fucks up, yeah. and I think that that's. That's 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 a lot because many players won't do it, you know, the way he does it. And like you said, he gets away with it. You know, that's his deal. That's how he plays. I would never want to muzzle him in the sense that like as far as like say don't say anything, just be quiet all the time on the court because like you said, that's how he that's his NBA skill. He's valuable in that sense. He's always talking, he's always communicating, he's giving everybody shit. He never stops and then that's just sort of his shtick. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. Next one. Hey, Bogan and Mike, enjoy the podcast. Thought I'd send this question again because I'm really interested in hearing it, hearing this being answered. Now, this fellow sent this question through a few times, so we're going we're gonna <laughs> to answer it this time. Both of you have been at Oracle Arena and the Bradley Center, both being one of the oldest NBA arenas at the time. Oracle and Bradley were your home court, Bogut, for many years. Minus the fan atmosphere, which of the two arenas were the shittest and outdated as an NBA facility? Hope you guys can answer this question. Daniel Kawayoshi from San Jose in California. What are your thoughts? Which one, which one was worse to you? as a visitor oh wow i love both of them because their locker rooms were awesome they're fucking they're like i love the i love the oracle locker room you know what i'm gonna go bradley center's worse because going in an oracle had a couple of things unbelievable fucking drinks and spread for food when you get into the uh, visit <laughs> a locker one. room <laughs> Yeah, that's easily number one. It's about a 20,000 square foot locker room, which is fantastic. It's the biggest visiting locker room in the league, I believe, right? Yeah, and they, they yeah, and they serve those little mini apple juices that are fantastic. Yes, I'll probably be a diabetic by the time I left there, but they're fucking unreal. And then also it has, they still kept the hole in the wall where when Dirk uh, lost the uh, playoff series to we the Warriors, we threw a you. chair. Yep. Yeah, where he threw the chair through the fucking wall, and he still they still had it, and I think they even took it to the new place. No, they, no, 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 no. Place- they made him sign it. They had him sign it. 
Yeah, I thought okay, I thought that they took it with them to the new spot. They might but have it but always it, like look yeah, yeah. yeah. Oracle, yeah. They actually had Dirk when he came back a year later or something, you know, Dirk's got a pretty good sense of humor. They had him sign that patch of the wall, so it was like up there with his name. Yeah. I love the I love old arenas, really. Like the new ones are great, don't get me wrong. They get all the bells and whistles, but there's a lot of history. There's a lot there's a lot there, but I, I really enjoy now. I don't enjoy that fucking hour, hundred and twenty five dollar uh, Uber ride to go to get from San Francisco to Oracle. But I'll tell you what, I'd rather go to Oracle than Bradley Center. I, you know, even though I I, I didn't mind the Bradley, I, I'd much rather go to Oracle than Bradley. Hundred percent agree. Um, my main home in the NBA for eight nine years was was Milwaukee, and the Bradley Center was just very very old and. Old is okay. Oracle was old, but it was actually refurbed. But they tried to make it still decent in, in the locker room, the facilities. Whereas, like the Bradley Center didn't really do a whole lot of work on renovating that place. It was it was what it was. We shared it with Marquette, so we couldn't probably do too much renovation wise. Like, I mean, we didn't even have you know indoor parking in Milwaukee. So, like you know, most arenas where it snows, you're parking underground for obvious reasons. But the Bradley Center just felt really dingy and and like a cave at times. Bad lighting and just old. I, I wasn't sad to see that one blown up and the, and the new one built. Whereas Oracle was old, but it had a soul. It had a had a presence about itself. Look, it wasn't in the best area. Like once you once you left the game, you were kind of trying to <laughs> you were trying to lock the doors and speed out of there and just get the hell out of there. Which always kind of was interesting to me is why the why the Oakland government, whatever county that falls under, I think it's Oakland, didn't try to build that area out with restaurants and bars because you got. You know, the Oakland Athletics and the Raiders at that time and us all played there. It just seemed like such a beautiful part. It was close to the water. They just never really built it up. So, most people would get in and get the hell out. It would have been a good thing for the local community to have something going there. But that's a story for another day. But I'd, I'd agree. I think um, Oracle, you know, as far as old arenas, was one of the best. So... Yeah, I, I always tried to get the armored SWAT vehicle uh, on my Uber selection when I was getting out of the <laughs> arena, but I could never get it. It definitely gets like that. So, I could take two routes home from the arena. I could take the freeway route, and then I could take this kind of shortcut route, which avoided traffic after a game, which would put me on another freeway. The kicker was that that alternate route was through one of the one of the roughest, toughest areas in Oakland. Um, so, I used to take that route a fair bit, and yeah, I've definitely- Definitely seen some things on street corners and, stu- and stuff that I probably shouldn't have and probably that I can't talk about in this podcast, but not a safe area at the best of times, that's for sure. Um, next one. Hey, guys, loving the pod. Do you see the NBA ever moving away from conferences, especially for the playoffs, and just seeding the teams 1-16 to 16 by record at the end of the season? Thanks. So, essentially a college-type feel to that. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question if they did it that way, but I, I kind of like the conferences. I think it, you know, there's always a balance of, you know, one conference is so weak compared to the other. We had the phase in the, in the early 2000s where it was the East was dominating and every every year it was an Eastern Conference team winning the championship. Then you had the Lakers and then you had, you know, so it goes in ebbs and flows. And, and right now, obviously, the West is doing a better job with with having more competitive teams. But I like the way it is. I think it's a, if it ain't broke, don't, don't fix it. Um, one one to sixteen for me, you know, just would be would kind of weird. What about you? Yeah, I agree. But although just tr- sort of tracking Adam Silver and how he operates, and trying to always sort of get out of the box and you know try new things and and try to be, you know, obviously you'd have to go through the thirty owners and vote on it and and, and you know and see where they are with that. But I could see him trying to push that through and just to be different and just show something different for the play uh, for a playoff series. I just I wouldn't want a situation where you have two Western teams playing. Now, you know, 
I, I know a lot of people disagree with that and say, why just get the top two teams to play? I get that. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of, you know, it's familiar, you know, times for, you know, fans, players, owners, teams that just has the old, you know, you know, one to eight, one to eight on um, um, conferences, you know, but by the time, you know, two years from now, it's probably going to be 14 teams each making the conference uh, tournament anyway. So on um, both sides, so it'd be about 28 out of 30 teams making it. But I think I would rather the old way. I like it. East versus West. You know, it just, I, I like the history of it. And I, I wouldn't want to, because you might have five, six straight years of like two West teams in it. Who wants to see that? You know, I'd rather I'd rather the history of the East versus the West. I agree. Thanks for that question. Uh, next one, love the podcast, love it. My question is, if now was the time when leaving the AIS for me personally, would you stay here and do a Next Stars program with the NBL or go to Utah in college like you did? If Next Stars, which NBL team? And then finishes up with, in your time in basketball, who did you have a beef with and later on reconciled it? And perhaps who does a beef still exist with Darren Walsh, Shell Harbour, New South Wales, Australia? For me, I enjoyed my college experience. Um, I think it was hard as far as money and all that kind of stuff and, and being able to live a normal life, take a girl out to the movies, couldn't do any of that really for the most part just because the NCAA kind of have a hammer over your head the whole time as far as what you can get from the school and, and coaches. So that was hard, but I, I enjoyed the experience. I think it made me who I am today. I would probably still go to the University of Utah or college in general. My belief with college was, I tell this to a lot of kids, is the, the it's not a contract that's binding. You don't have to stay there for your whole scholarship. So, for Australian kids listening to this, if you're tossing up whether to go to the NBL, professional or, or Europe or whatever or, or, the, or college, you can go there and absolutely hate it and within a month return home. It's not ideal, but you can do that. And that's what I always tell kids. Go and experience it. It's cool culturally. It's part of American culture. You see it on movies, colleges, parties, frats, all that kind of stuff, sporting events, the pride and passion you have for your school, whether it's basketball or football it's a cool thing to be a part of so i always kind of um, push kids towards in going at least experience it and if you're homesick and you absolutely hate it which a few few kids that um, i know that went one went to university of utah Stephen way he left after i think a year and didn't go back just because he didn't enjoy it so I'll, i'll still do the college thing and as far as a beef for me i had a beef with david lee um, from basically my rookie year onwards. I, I hated David Lee and I think the feeling was mutual. He's now a good friend of mine because um, we played together on the Warriors. But so I was the number one pick. He was a second round pick and we got into it in Summer League from day day dot. He was talking shit. I was talking shit. We got into it and I just didn't like him because of that. And then, you know, we whenever we played the Knicks, we'd have some great battles. And then the, there was that all-star injury replacement I spoke about a few podcasts ago where they, they, they gave him the nod over me and made me hate him even more even though it wasn't his fault. <laughs> um, so, And then once I joined the Warriors, he was my teammate and he was actually he's actually a very good guy. He's much like myself in a way, like a sarcastic, dry, always joking, always making fun of people and I enjoyed being around him. So that was one that, that was, um, was cool and that I think with a bit more context, there's so many players that hate other players just based on some petty rivalry or the same draft or he went higher than me and it's just kind of how professional athletes are we're petty with with, with certain things like the, the Michael Jordan Last Dance documentary was really showed that like how guys like Michael Jordan or anyone overthink things sometimes sometimes for their own motivation and and I was no different neither was David Lee so um, but then once you actually get to spend time with the person at dinner or away from the basketball court you're like shit this dude's actually a really good guy like I'm 
why do I why do I ever hate this guy? And I'm sure you'd, you'd agree with that, Pro. Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of it's through motivation, like you said. Um, I've heard about it with draft. It's usually draft, especially like if that one player was like supposed to be a top three or four pick and you wouldn't dr- work out against anybody and that player that hated him was in that group of guys that were considered like eight to 20 and they would never work out against each other and that player could never move up because of that and then it could be a contract that you know one player got a you know a big deal that this other player thought that that would that was his deal to get in free agency and like I, I just think a lot of times it just fuels you know the chip on their shoulder to go forward I, I, it's a lot of it's petty a lot of it just to get going and get motivation but in, in in most cases, like you said, if you break bread and talk and, you know, have communication and, and, and see where each person's coming from, it's usually not that big of a deal. You know, some of it was like pro wrestling where you thought they were enemies for life and you would see them out to eat, you know, because it was just a competitive thing. But yeah, and then plus today, there's really not a lot of players that hate each other. It's a lot different than when you played and you, you were getting into it, you know, early on in your career. It's just, there's not a lot of that hatred that there is that there was when the rivalries and they, they took it the sort of competition was a little bit different back then than it is today as far as people being nicer to each other and and things like that oh but, man you talk to whenever you listen to some of these old vets even before my time talk they still hate each other like <laughs> the 70s 80s 90s like bird isaiah thomas isaiah thomas mj you know you're just like holy shit these guys still like want to kill each other like they, <laughs> they still can't let it go whereas oh my god i think yeah today's Today's society and, and today's players is probably too far the other way, right? It's like, you know, they can be boys on, on a TikTok video within an hour of going at it on a basketball court. So, it's, it's definitely, definitely gone full circle. I mean, a story back in the day, I, I forgot who it was. It might have been Otis Hill. Uh, I forgot the player's name, but he like owed uh, Charles Oakley money or something like that. Oh, I forgot what the deal was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah, yeah and they it. were at University of North Carolina and he owed him money or, or I think it was a gambling debt. And he was like shooting free throws after practice. Oak just walked up to him playing his day and cold cocked him and knocked him the fuck out in one punch and just walked off like nothing happened. I heard that was pregame. I mean, like, yeah, I, heard it, I heard it pregame. I heard oh, it was, it was pregame? I okay, it was I thought it was practice. Warm-ups. No, I heard it was pregame warm-ups. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was – I think it was – an. Uh, the guy went to Xavier. I forgot the guy's name. Hill, I thought. An all-star foreman, but like uh, – Tyrone Hill? Tyrone Hill. I think it was Tyrone Hill, and it was at North Carolina. I think it was like an exhibition game, and he just walked up and cold-cocked him. I mean, it's just a different different story back then. I was a gambling you know, debt just, too, I believe. Oh, fuck. Yeah, don't – I mean, I've heard stories on gambling debts where, like, guys, you know, walked other players off the plane to an ATM, you know, <laughs> drive to an ATM and, like, f- waited for the money. I mean, there's a lot of shit that happened with that stuff. But, like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Of, it was just different back then than it is today. But, yeah, yeah I think a lot of it's motivation. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And overblown. All right, next one. Loving the podcast. Bogues, the culture in the USA sports scene seems polar opposite to that of Australia. It's common for an NBA player to say, I'm the best player in the league. No one can guard me, et cetera, et cetera. If you say that in Australia, the public would basically disown you. It also seems common for US sports stars to make diva-like demands. You've spoken about that somewhat on the pod. How did you deal with that difference in culture? What was the most diva-like demand you ever witnessed and what was one that you ever made in your career? Michael from Perth, Western Australia. Yeah, I've, I've touched on that numerous times. Like the Australian culture is much different. Australia is even to the point where you don't believe it. You say, oh, yeah, it's all 
about the team, even if you don't believe it, that's kind of what you have to do PR-wise in Australia. Where in America, it's kind of the opposite. You want to you want to pump yourself up. And I think it's somewhere in the middle. You want to be confident and promote yourself when needed. You don't want to overdo it. And you also want to be team conscious of your team, you know, of your teammates and coaches and other people that are working with you because you don't want to poison that, the locker room essentially. So, as far as diva demands, oh man, I personally never really had any massive diva demands. All I really cared about was getting my treatment in, getting my physio, getting, um, you know, if it was an off-season rehab and an injury, I'd, I'd hand in my, you know, receipts from physios and masseuses of getting my body right from an injury and, and the team would pay for it. That was about as far as my diva-like demands went. They weren't really demands. They were part of workers' comp and whatever. But um, some guys, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the I guess the James Harden one for me, flying, flying to Cabo on the team owner's private jet, during the season in the middle of a road trip is is right up there with one that I've heard. <laughs> That's just like ridiculous. That's crazy. Um, That's as far crazy. as guys just losing their shit over stuff, I haven't heard any horrible ones. But, you know, there are some some players that make demands, usually at contract time. I, I think um, Kawhi Leonard, I think, who's known as a quiet, kind of unassuming, humble guy, I heard he had some pretty crazy demands for the Lakers when they were kicking the tires about about signing him or, or trading for him, which involved hiring a bunch of his family members on the front office staff and whatnot. So they are pretty crazy demands, and and yeah, I guess it's just it is it goes with the culture of of the NBA, you know. And it, and sometimes it comes down to the culture of a team. Pro always talks about: Are you the San Antonio or Miami? Or you ask them for some stupid shit like that, and they're going to laugh you out the room? Or are you a smaller team that just wants to sign a max star, and you're going to sell the farm for them? There's a, there's a you know there's a strategy and kind of an understanding within that, and some. Sometimes small market teams might say, hey, let's sell the farm to get this guy because we're not going to get an opportunity to get him again. And, and that can sometimes put you over the hill. You look at um, the Toronto Raptors with getting a one-year rental of Kawhi and having to deal with a bit of the a bit of that divaness, won him a championship. But then there's a lot of times where it goes the other way. So I think it needs to be a fine balance, right, bro? Yeah, for sure. Um I know it was a, a lot of levels to that question, but as far as like the diva so that I'm the best player, no one can guard me. They never really keep the audio going during that statement because it's usually no one can guard me and I ain't going to fucking guard anybody either. You know, usually goes ahead of that the second part of that statement. But um, there are players that are divas. There are players that are a low maintenance, you know. Um, I, that's why I really like dealing with the role players because they, you know, they didn't really have a lot of demands. They just, you know, they, they always had that chip on their shoulder and that edge. But um, there are players that, you know, look, if you have leverage, you can do that shit. If you don't have leverage, you know, if you're Michael Jordan, you have leverage. If you're Johnny Jordan, you have nothing. So, like, you can't, you can't even ask for a second pair of socks. But if you're, you know, if you got the leverage where teams are going to go a little bit above and beyond to get you, that's fine. And, and that's, that's society. That's, that's, that's the NBA and that's life. Like, if you have if they want you and you're in demand, you could probably be a little bit more loose with asking for things. And there are going to be teams that, you know, say yes. There's going to be teams that say fuck off. Most teams will say yes, you know, especially if it's a superstar. And um, it's just some stuff that you have to deal with. And in today's society, we talked about it in the NBA society. We talked about it last pod about, you know, about team, you know, players switching teams like crazy. And look, if they fall out of favor one day, they f they wake up on the wrong side of the bed and all of a sudden two years into a max deal, say, I want to get the fuck out. Usually the, the teams, you know, the team probably deals them. So you got to, you know, it's easy to say, yeah, I just tell them to fuck off. But like, 
You know, I, I mean, if you're a small market team that will never get that player again in your wildest dreams, you might, you know, you might probably think about going to the dock side and, you know, and, and sort of giving into some of those demands. If you're an organization that has strong, you know, st- strong culture and strong feeling and deep roots, you're probably going to say, no, we don't do that here. Unfortunately, you just have to, you know, go somewhere else. But, you know, it depends on the player, I guess. Yeah. And that's, that's like when all walks of life, I guess. But um, moving on to story time, I have a really good one, I think. I think it's a pretty good laugh. Um, not many people outside of Australia will know who I'm talking about, but I think it's a good one. So, Perth Wildcats fans, you're going to love this one. So, pro Perth Wildcat fans here in the NBL, they absolutely love me. They're big fans of, of my work, especially when I play for the Sydney Kings. I think most people bought a ticket to the game when we played there just to boo me and abuse the shit out of me, <laughs> which was great fun. Um, and they're a little bit different down that, that side of the country, pro. They're, they're, they're in a big time difference to us and they usually get their news about three or four months after we do so <laughs> they're, they're a little bit angry at times but um all in good fun so their head coach trevor gleason known to be a, a pretty fiery guy you know he's been a very successful coach in the nbl won a bunch of championships down there in perth he's coached numerous teams but anyway he's assistant coach on our coaching staff with the australian national team in 2016 we go to the rio olympics in brazil and for our, I guess, our off the, our non-game day training sessions, they had these kind of circus tent basketball courts set up. So, they were air-conditioned everything, just had a circus circus tent roof. Um, and then we could actually walk from our village over this kind of footbridge over a main road outside of the village and get to the facility, right? And it's pretty strict. Mm-hmm. You, you basically have an hour and there's there's a dude from FIBA that, you know, four o'clock on the dot, they they, they bring the balls out. And then you've got an hour. And then as soon as that buzzer goes, they take the balls off you. Like there's no extra shots. There's none of that shit. You have your hour and you're off the court. It's, it comes down to Olympic international basketball and other events. Is like you can't give one team more shots or one athlete more time on the track or whatever it is. It all needs to be even, right? Sure. So the ball, the the, the molten fever ball is, you know, for every, every game, let's say the Olympics in 2016 has a stamp of Rio 2016 and it becomes a collector's item, at least for basketball. So, what happens in previous tournaments is like players and coaches would just slowly steal these balls, right? And try to get them as a souvenir <laughs> from the game. So, FIBA and that started getting smart, right? So, when these people, when the when the workers bring the balls out, they know how many they've given you. And then when they when they run out, so you're training from four to five. When they run out at five, they count all the balls and they don't let you leave till they've got every ball, right? So, like, they know, okay, there's yeah. 19 balls. We gave you 20. We need that extra ball. So, it basically prevented people from – because, you know, every other session, they're losing five or six balls. They're not stupid, right? It's costing them money and we mm-hmm. can't have FIBA lose money now. So, <laughs> Trevor Gleason realizes this, that he can't pinch a ball and he's big about about game balls for some reason. So, we go in – I think we're, like, third game into the into the Olympics. He brings a needle to deflate a ball, right? So, he, he – mm-hmm. I think we had about a 40-minute on-court session that day and then the last 20 minutes was done for like get your own shots up with a coach or individual or whatever you want to do, stretch, go lift, whatever, right? So, right. this dude deflates this ball at the 40-minute mark, puts it in his backpack and when you leave this kind of – this area where all the courts are, you got to go through – in, 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 but not out, but you got to go next to where you came in. It's kind of airport-like security. So, when you're walking in, you got to go through like a convey belt for your bags and then get scanned and all that shit. But then when you walk out, you're walking right next to that, but you don't have to go through it again, obviously, right? So, mm-hmm. at forty at the 40-minute 40 mark, he deflates his ball and leaves <laughs> and he's gone. 
He's out, he's out of that secure area. He's already probably back at the village or about to get back to the village, right? So then we're still shooting, whatever, whatever, whatever. The 60 minute comes, a little fever dude comes running out with the ball, the ball racks. They're missing a ball. So he starts, you know, he's basically telling us, like, you guys can't leave. I need, we're missing a ball. And we're like, well, no, we don't have, you know, so guys, bring it in. Who took the ball? Everyone's like, I don't have it. I don't have it. I don't have it. The guy's like, you guys can't leave till we get this ball back. So we're like, fuck, like, what are you going to do? Just hold us here. So, so we sat there for f- three or four minutes to the point where guys were like, had to open all their bags. The guy was checking everyone's bag individually, going through everyone, making sure, you know, there's no ball. Can't find this ball. So then he thinks we're up to something, right? He thinks like, oh, maybe when I've checked the first bag, they've, they've then passed it around or whatever, right? So it starts mm-hmm. getting like fiery, like Aaron Baines, um, for those that, that don't know him, if he's late for, for, for his meal time, he's losing his shit. So <laughs> he's hungry. And as a man, you don't want hungry, trust me, right? <laughs> so he's like, I don't have the fucking ball. Here's my bag and just starts walking for the door. Guy's trying to stop him. He gets out, the, gets out of the door of the gym. So he's basically broken broken the barrier of this one guy trying to stop us from getting out. So he starts walking towards kind of where that checkpoint uh, is. So they radio to the security guards there not to let uh, Aaron Baines out. Jesus. These dudes are holding M16 rifles or whatever they were, AR-15s, whatever. They've got the army, the strap with the gun in front of them. So they put their hand out to make him stop. They've radioed through, don't let that guy leave. So Aaron Baines is like, what do you mean? And, and, and the guy's like, you know, they don't speak English that well. I think they were speaking, you know, Portuguese. And they're like, you know, halt, no, stop, stop, stop. Fever dude comes running in. He's like, you can't leave till we get this ball back. And Aaron Baines is losing his shit. He's like yelling at the Fever dude, this is my fucking bag. I don't have the ball. This is bullshit. I'm going. You can't stop me. And he's losing it. And at this point, the you just see the security dudes starting to kind of half raise their fucking guns, man. Like you know, like starting to get like ready. Like not not. I mean, I doubt they're going to shoot him, but like like hey, man, like back the fuck off, you know. <laughs> so I'm like Bainsy, Bainsy, like just calm down, man. Like the dude's got a. You're not fighting a dude with an M16, bro. Like it's not gonna not gonna work out well for you, man. Like just chill out, just chill out, just chill out. But yeah, so we don't know all this though, right? So no one knows. We don't. I don't know Trevor Gleason's the flight of this ball. No one knew. No one even knew that he was gone. Because, like, you know, it's just some weird thing. You're not going to notice it when it's happening, right? That's nuts. So, all this happens. We fi- we finally get through and we get to the village. And then um, I still remember, like, the end of the tournament, Trevor Gleason comes with the ball and he's getting the whole team to sign it at the end of the tournament. And then everyone kind of click like, hey, man, like, where the fuck did you get this ball? And he's like, oh, yeah, no, I deflated it one one training session and took it. No one knew. And Aaron Baines was fucking livid, man. He wants to kill the dude. Like, And I th- I'm pretty sure like he, he either refused to sign the ball or he just signed it ABC123 or some shit. But just a funny story from good old Trevor Gleason um, about his ex- escapades with collecting basketballs. And I'll follow that up with this one, Perth Wildcat fans. I have it on good authority when they won the championship, not this past season, the season before against Melbourne United. They won game four, I believe, in Melbourne. That wrapped up the series, the three-game series. They were flying back to Perth. Trevor had gotten the game ball. Now, there was a player on that team named Greg Hire, who uh, was a kind of a Wildcats legend, more of a you know, a Marcus Smart type we spoke about before, like he'd go out there and take someone out for you, physical guy, scrapper, played above his talent, if that made sense. And the guys on the team were like, we want to get that ball for Greg because it's his, you know, it's his last game and he's he's a legend. And so Trevor Gleason's taken this ball and and wouldn't let it go. So the players, I guess he put it down for a second in the locker room. The players have um, swapped the ball out without him knowing, gotten Greg the game ball and given Trevor just a regular ball off a rack, but he didn't know it was not the right one. And Trevor apparently has 
taking this ball on the plane, showing all the sh- all the flight attendants and stewardesses like, hey, this is the championship ball. I've got this. And rumor has it to this day, he's got it in his um in his little trophy room office at his house as the official championship ball. So Trevor Gleason, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, mate, you don't you don't have the official championship ball. They've done you a dodgy. <laughs> and Greg Heyer has that one. I don't think anyone knows. Trevor definitely doesn't know. So if you're a Perth Wildcat fan, make sure you let him know that he just got a regular. I believe it was a Wilson basketball from the NBL that has no sentimental value what do you got for us bro the statute of limitations might be off on that maybe hey bogues just like the just like when i step on my scale i think i'm gonna wave the white flag like my scale does when i try to jump on the scale and say i cannot outdo that story this week i'm gonna go no story time this week and and try to recover for next week yeah, the moral of my story wasn't so much still on the ball. It was do not get in the way of Aaron Baines in a buffet because um, I can I can tell you like, he was one of those dudes that even walking back to the village, he'd be at the front of our walking group line making sure that he was at the food first. Um, and if, he, if for some reason the food wasn't there, wasn't ready on time by the hotel staff – Oh boy, um, it was it was trouble. Like, and uh, Aaron Baines loves it, loves a good feed. And a shout out to Aaron um, playing up there with Toronto. But uh, just a funny story that I thought you know getting murdered in in Brazil over a uh, a deflated Rio 2016 basketball probably wouldn't be the best way to go out and you know have on your obituary. That's unreal. That's a great story. Another one wrapped up. Thanks, Pro Rogue Bogues at Rogue Bogues on all your social media platforms at Hoop Consultants. If you want to learn more about Pro and what he's doing over there in the States and get some good advice, he does that. Not only for people in, in the US. Fuck, I'll, hey, I'll, I'll fly over Australia. Yeah, you'll fly over Australia. Not right now, you won't. We're not letting, we're not letting any of you Americans in. We got, we're, we're down to 34 cases, I think, countrywide. We can't, we can't risk having you fuckers come over here and, and get us locked down again. That's a good point. I'm a nasty motherfucker. So, yeah, you're right. I might as well stay here. No, you've got everything but COVID. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. No doubt about it. I'll definitely, I'll definitely infect it with grease, cholesterol, and uh, triglycerides for sure. Oh, and fructose corn syrup. But besides that, I'll be all right. Yeah, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. We'll get you a treadmill over here and start working on that. But thanks again. We'll see you next week, bro. Later, folks. Thanks, brother.